start again? Take two? <laughs> Generally in the evening talks, <laughs> we will be connecting a lot of what we've been exploring more to our own individual practice. In the morning, particularly looking at more collective issues. In the afternoon, looking at, uh, to some extent, individual practice, but also how these practices look in the context of relationships and organizations and communities. And then in the evening, especially making some connections with traditional practice and what the practice looks like more individually. Um, To some extent, we'll be following that guideline. Actually, tonight I'll do that some, but I also want to uh, continue to give a kind of overview of how we're approaching this uh, connection of inner and outer transformation. And I want to talk uh, some out of my own experience and some uh, historically and uh, in a way parallel to the way that David presented, point to that way that many of us feel this deep um, intuition, if you want to call it that, to connect inner and outer transformation, and yet we don't know so well how to do it. (laughs) And we're partly here to assemble a critical mass to get energy moving in that direction, much like your comment that we we look for places where we can um, uh, develop that uh, community of people who are interested in uh, making those connections in in one's own life and work and and see in particular uh, what the next steps are. That's all we really ask. What I've found over the years is It actually doesn't work very well to try to figure everything out. Have you noticed that? But it does work to know what inspires me, what energizes me, and what are my next steps. Or what is my next step or two. That works, I have found. There's a deep impulse that many of us have to try to figure everything out get my life totally together, then there will be no more dukkha. (laughs) I actually thought when I first started practicing that all my dukkha would be over by age 30. (laughs) That I would get to some level of awakening or other and that I'd be on a permanent enlightened plateau. That was an ignorant wish and an idea. <laughs> it's, uh, part of the beauty of the Dharma is that things keep opening up. Things keep unfolding. And we think we've seen certain parts of our mind and then others open up. So I think I, in my own experience, went through a version of what uh, David presented as a kind of uh, story 
of these two beautiful traditions or impulses, one for justice and one for awakening. And in my, my own experience, as I mentioned some last night, I was uh, initially uh, drawn to be more active, to, um, to open up to different issues that were surfacing. You know, I think for me it was particularly around, initially, around racism and around um, uh, war, war and peace. And uh, I found my eyes opened to things I didn't quite realize about the society and about the world and about history. You know, that things were opened up and in a way certain veils were lifted, illusions were cut through, you know, to see, uh, to see the level of suffering in the world and to see, uh, to see some about, about history. And my, my parents were both in a way very active, you know, had been activists in different ways and were, were working in different communities. Uh, my mother was one of the first people who did what we would now call diversity training. And in the uh, Richmond, Virginia public schools where she was ombudsperson for race relations <laughs> in, in a time of uh, court ordered desegregation of the whole school system. And it was pretty, pretty intense, pretty intense time. And uh, so, so I was both very inspired, but I also came to see certain limits, you know, that uh, I, I spent time, uh, you know, both with, this was mostly uh, initially in high school and in college. Um, a lot of my friends were activists. I, I spent uh, a summer working in the U.S. Congress and that was a difficult experience. And, and uh, to see how so much just turned on re-election and how people were so little interested in going deeply on the issues, even the so-called best people, that was a little shocking to me. Um, and among my friends, I could see that we sometimes would get hooked on ideas or principles and wouldn't treat each other very well. And sometimes the end seemed to justify the means. You know, and I spent time also uh, in uh, France and Germany and you know, saw, uh, actually had a fellowship after my sophomore year in college to study French student activism. It was pretty interesting. It, Actually, um, I used the scholarship money to go to a lot of bars. <laughs> I was not yet a Buddhist following the precepts. <laughs> that's, where you, that's where I met people, right? That's where I met uh, very interesting people. You know, and arrange, we'd arrange meetings. And, and if, if it wasn't bars, they would... They, drink, uh, they drank way more than I was ever comfortable with. And they would have me drink half a bottle of wine for a meal and I would, 
not make it through. <laughs> anyway, that's little. You picked up the bar tab. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think I, <laughs> I think I didn't have that habit at age 18. <laughs> you know, but. Um, what I found in all of those examples was that something felt lacking. Something, you know, whether it was how we treated each other, how people acted ethically. And I really had the question, um, something like what some of you know from the uh, old anarchist uh, activist Emma Goldman. Some of you know that history, you know, who was active in the first part of the 20th century. And she asked, uh, I don't want to be in your revolution if I can't dance. And I wasn't sure that I wanted to be in the kind of change that they were offering. It seemed to be lacking something. I felt that very, very much. And uh, a short time later, towards the end of being in college, I, I um, started to get involved with... Uh, I learned about Buddhist practice and was... Um, Started to do a lot of reading, and then and then uh, met uh, uh, Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and Jack Cornfield. I was living at the time in uh, Boston, so I was near by the uh, Insight Meditation Society, in which is west of Boston, about uh, an hour and a half. And I started doing a lot of retreats, and uh, they were very transformative, you know, and just to open up to the quiet mind. And, you know, I mentioned last night, there was, it was a lot of retreat time and it was very, very powerful. And yet somehow when I, you know, after the retreats, when I went back to my community of Buddhist friends, uh, they, they didn't seem to have this, have much attention to the world. I think that was different in some communities. And it was, different some on the West Coast, as you were saying. There were some differences. Buddhist Peace Fellowship was founded in 1978 uh, in Hawaii, actually, by Robert Aitken, who's someone who we've both uh, spent a lot of time with and who died just a few years ago in his 90s, right? He was one of the first uh, Zen masters. He was also a, uh, a tax resistor and a um, long-time activist. Um, and, and so I felt uh, for quite a bit of time um, quite very lonely. It was like I felt like I had to leave part of myself at the door if I was, uh, you know, if I would be more active socially it was like something felt off and I, and I actually could not bring my interest in Buddhist meditation very much into those circles. And I lost friendships because of that. And some of you may have, some of you may have had this experience of um, polarization, some. And, um, and that lasted for a while and it was sometimes lonely. To how to, you know, and I, didn't, I wasn't clear what I wanted. Right? I wasn't clear about this integration that slowly emerged. But uh, um, I felt like in these different circles, I couldn't bring all of myself. I couldn't bring these two valuable perspectives. And uh, I could see that uh, neither uh, group or neither community 
really had um, brought in the other. And, and there seemed to be limits because of that, limits on both sides. So I resolved all those issues by moving to California. A <laughs> little bit tongue-in-cheek, but uh, there's some truth to it. <laughs> uh, because I actually found here, this was uh, starting in, in the late 80s, moving here, and starting to find uh, a critical mass of people, not just Buddhists, but also in other approaches. You know, I met uh, Michael Lerner, who is a rabbi and um, longtime editor of Tikkun magazine, which is related to the Jewish phrase Tikkun Olam, which is the imperative to repair the world as a, as a spiritual, spiritual vocation. So I met people and uh, got involved with Buddhist Peace Fellowship, which was based in, in uh, Berkeley, is now based in Oakland and started going to uh, Asia and meeting with, uh, started meeting a lot of friends from particularly Thailand, Burma, some of the other Asian countries, Japan, um, and started to find a critical mass of people. Probably also connected with that was important. I think it was 1987, I met Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese teacher. And I started to learn about more about engaged Buddhism, what we call engaged Buddhism in this history. And there, there, were, there were these beautiful examples that really uh, started especially in around mid-20th century in Sri Lanka, in, in uh, Vietnam, in Thailand, in Burma, uh, all as responses to significant crises of the time. Some of them, like in Sri Lanka, uh, in Vietnam were related to crises of colonialism you know, and the, the attempt to free the country from the European invaders. And so you find that in Sri Lanka, you find that in, uh, in Vietnam. Uh, I, I had a, a student um, a Vietnamese uh, student named Venerable Minduk, who was a senior student of Thich Nhat Hanh, who eventually wrote a PhD dissertation on the history of engaged Buddhism in Vietnam. And he did some very interesting research. He found that people were uh, singing songs in the late 1930s. He found some old songbooks that were used in Vietnam in the uh, 1930s, which, which, which were in French, which were like saying, engagez-vous. <laughs> which means engage yourself, you know, in, in the world, you know. And, and, and that tradition uh, really started and got very strong. And Thich Nhat Hanh was a pivotal figure. And uh, in the packet there, there, really the first entry is a statement that he and colleagues developed in the early 1960s as a way to connect their attempt to help refugees to meet the, the problems of the war and to um, bring an end to the war and to have that be a form of engaged practice, to have that be a form of Buddhist practice. So, and so 
He is one of the great innovators. He said this, when I was in Vietnam, so many of our villages were being bombed. Along with my monastic brothers and sisters, I had to decide what to do. Should we continue to practice in our monasteries or should we leave the meditation halls in order to help the people who were suffering under the bombs? After careful reflection, we decided to do both. To go out and help people, but to do so in mindfulness. We called it engaged Buddhism. Mindfulness must be engaged. Once there is seeing, there must be acting. And they developed a series of guidelines that you can see in this first entry in the packet called the 14 precepts of the order of interbeing. Wonderful guidelines which people still use, which can give you a sense of how to connect this engagement with practice. And so the first one has to do with views. Do not be idolatrous about or bound to any doctrine, theory, or ideology, even Buddhist ones. Buddhist systems of thought are guiding means. They are not absolute truth. And you can see how there is a connection of even the traditional ethical guidelines with engagement. Number five, do not accumulate wealth while millions are hungry. Do not take the aim of your, as the aim of your life fame, profit, wealth, or sensual pleasure. Live simply and share time, energy, and material resources with those who are in need. Number eight, do not utter words that can create discord and cause the community to break. Make every effort to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small. Number 12, do not kill. Do not let others kill. Find whatever means possible to protect life and prevent war. So you see, he's taking it from an, um, taking ethics from a personal and interpersonal perspective and making it also collective. He says, do not kill. Well, I may be pretty good with my not killing, but do not let others kill. That changes things, doesn't it? Do not let others kill in my name then if we take the ethical precepts seriously, we have some work to do. Because especially as citizens in at least, um, how should I say, purportedly democratic society and democratic to some extent, we do have governments who kill in our name, right? And we have uh, some ability to affect that, right? And he's saying, that should be a matter of our ethical precepts. Ethics doesn't stop just at our interpersonal relationships, right? And so in the packet, we also, you know, you can also find some further history. There's a piece that I did which with uh, Alan Sanaki, who for about 10 or 12 years was director of Buddhist Peace Fellowship. We did a piece giving some of the history. And so we... For me, I came to have, as I contacted people and found a lot of peers, particularly particularly from Thailand, actually, and they came to the U.S., and I spent time in Thailand and found people who were incredibly inspiring to me, some of whom had been in prison for times, uh, some of whom were environmental activists, 
There was one monk I met who took the radical action of choosing to prevent deforestation by putting robes, monastic robes, on trees. Essentially making them monks. And no one would cut down the trees. Creativity, we're talking about that. And so, and I, I remember another one, a uh, person I met, Prabhupai San, who is still, still very much in touch, who was an abbot of a monastery. He spent six months every year in the monastery, including three months on retreat during the traditional rains retreat, during the monsoon season. And he spent six months being active in the different communities, particularly doing environmental work. I said, that sounds great. Is anyone going to pay for me to do that? But he, he could do that because was, he was a monk, right? And, and that, but that model was very inspiring, that combination. And so I, I came to be drawn, and a, a group of us were really drawn by that vision of um, connecting inner and outer. You know, and we found different resources, different understandings. Uh, we found, let's see where this is. You know, we, f- we found um, different voices. Oops. Different voices that express that. This is the passage from uh, Walt Whitman that I was mentioning. This is from Democratic Vistas, 1871. We have frequently printed the word democracy, yet I cannot too often repeat that it is a word, the real gist of which still sleeps, quite unawakened. It is a great word whose history, I suppose, remains unwritten because that history has yet to be enacted. And then he called for what he called a sublime and serious religious democracy something like that vision that we've been talking about. And he, he said also, let me see where this is. He said, we must have our citizens trained, properly trained in sanest, highest freedom, were his words. That was 1871. Also began to see the ways that there was a split. You know, we were called to this integration, but we also started to cover, in my own experience, cover some of the territory that David was covering and see how it was difficult to bring the traditions together, to bring those approaches together. Let's see, this is, where is this? Sorry, 
This is from Gary Snyder, uh, the Buddhist, Buddhist, poet, environmentalist who lives uh, not so far from here. Historically, Buddhist philosophers have failed to analyze out the degree to which ignorance and suffering are caused or encouraged by social factors, considering fear and desire to be given facts of the human condition. Consequently, the major concern has been um, epistemology, which is the nature of knowing, and psychology, so-called, with no attention paid to historical or social problems. Although Mahayana Buddhism has a grand vision of universal salvation, the actual achievement of Buddhism has been the development of practical systems of meditation towards the end of liberating a few dedicated individuals. Institutional Buddhism has been conspicuously ready to accept or ignore the inequalities and tyrannies of whatever political system it found itself under. The mercy of the West has been social revolution. The mercy of the East has been individual insight into the basic self-void. We need both. They are both contained in the traditional three aspects of the Dharma path. Wisdom, or prajna, meditation, dhyana, and morality, sila. Wisdom is intuitive knowledge of the mind of love and clarity that lies beneath one's ego-driven anxieties and aggressions. Meditation is going into the mind to see this for yourself over and over again until it becomes the mind you live in. Morality is bringing it back out in the way you live through personal example and responsible action, ultimately towards the true community of all beings. 1961. Gary Snyder. And so came to see how that wasn't so expressed in traditional Buddhism, how that combination also was often not expressed so well even in contemporary Buddhism. One of the uh, persons who's very active these days is an American monk named Bhikkhu Bodhi some of you know, who's the, the great translator of our generation of the uh, discourses of the Buddha for wisdom publications. And so he's both scholarly and he's a monk, but he's like, a, I don't know, he has a lot of fire. <laughs> and he's, he started an organization, what's it called? Buddhist Global Relief. Buddhist Global Relief, which brings... Um, Buddhist-based responses to situations of suffering and need. He's also, I've been working with him a lot the last, uh, almost the last year on climate issues. We have a group, including David, who have been meeting on the phone monthly around climate issues and coordinating actions and plans and making statements and, you know, modest, but I think, but, and he wrote a very interesting piece a few years ago called A Challenge to Buddhists. It's a contemporary Buddhist. He said, um, it seems to me that, the West, that we Western Buddhists tend to dwell in a cognitive space that defines the first noble truth largely against the background of our middle-class lifestyles as the gnawing of discontent, the ennui of oversatiation, the pain of unfulfilling relationships or with a bow to Buddhist theory as bondage to the round of rebirth. Too often, I feel, our focus on these aspects of dukkha has made us oblivious to the vast catastrophic suffering that daily overwhelms three-fourths of the world's population. And so we can, 
we could start, I could start to see that, that something really new is called for. How do we do that? How do we go in that direction? I also could, could feel some of the challenges, really, of um, making that connection, of making that connection between inner and outer. It is not easy. You know, it's not easy for some of the reasons I gave from a personal perspective, just of the fact that, um, well, the, certainly the activist community didn't seem very interested in um, inner work and sometimes was, uh, was very resistant to that. And Buddhists seem, again, seemed largely to, uh, this is generalization, but often would take practice as a way to find personal peace in a difficult world, which is valuable, not to be, not to be dismissed, but it, it's also limited. You know? And so uh, I, I also came to, to see that there were a lot of historical reasons for this, for the, for the split, that, you know, a lot of the history of uh, European movements for social change in the 18th, 19th, 20th century actually had come out of, um, often come out of a critique of religion as being linked with oppression. Some of you may remember Marx, religion is the opiate of the people. By which means he he didn't um, dismiss opium. People, he, he thought it was useful for helping some, but it wasn't really dealing with the problems. That was his point. He wasn't saying religion is useless, but he was saying it doesn't really get at the problems. And there were these traditions which, in which, which grew up and became the so-called progressive movements that we know of, where there was a deep historical suspicion of anything religious or spiritual. Which, you prob- which I certainly could still find in many of the organizations I was part of. Still very, very strong. I sort of track this by, in my local community by listening to our local radio station, KPFA, and tracking how many spiritual programs they have. For those of you who are local know what that means. <laughs> you know. um, but there are these, these ways. Another strong factor is that we have, uh, we have in our political language the separation of church and state, right? which is often meant to say that religion is exclusively <clears throat> a private matter and it should stay out of the social and political realms. And we have these strong ways that this has structured the last few centuries and has a huge influence on making it difficult to make these connections. You know, religion is defined as something that's pretty much subjective, not taught in the universities, right? You can learn about religion, but to be spiritual is not something that you generally learn uh, in universities. It's not real knowledge. It's subjective. That's changing some, but that's still, that's still the understanding. So do you, do you begin to see how there are, not, there are many, many reasons why this uh, division is hard to bridge, a lot of historical, structural features um, get in the way. 
And so for myself, um, finding that critical mass of people, I started to work with people to develop ways really of um, connecting inner and outer, you know, and working with people in Thailand and working with people in the US. Um, we started developing trainings and programs. One was founded by my um, dear friend and colleague, Diana Winston, and was called the BASE program. Does anyone know Diana? Oh, great. And she's in LA now, t- um, teaching mindfulness t- on a vast scale through UCLA. Interesting. To all sorts of communities. And uh, she developed a program called the BASE program, uh, which stood for Buddhist Alliance for Social Engagement, but we just called it BASE, and it was actually named to resonate with the BASE community movement from Latin America, which, which was in part, in part inspired the uh, whole approach. And we, had, we, we uh, did this uh, for the better part of 10 years. We had small groups where generally uh, 8 to 13 or 15 people where we uh, had, we had six-month programs, and some of them we developed so that they would go on past six months. One that I worked with worked for about three years together. And, but the, there was a six-month training. We met either once or two, one or two evenings a week. We had one or two whole days a month, and we began and ended with a weekend retreat. Everyone in the program had to be engaged in the world in some way service or action. And we, we reported on what we were finding and what we were um, learning in these situations. And people would come and say, gosh, I was just overwhelmed today. And we'd work with it. You know, we'd work with those situations. Or, um, you know, um, it's really hard to be compassionate. How do I do that? I, my heart just starts closing when there's too much pain. How do I do that? And some people were more at a policy level and they were working in different ways. You know, we, had, we did about, uh, not us exclusively, we had help. We, had about, we did about 30 of those six-month training programs over those years and sort of started to amass a um, uh, kind of uh, basis of experience. And... At a certain later point, uh, Diana and I started teaching retreats, and we we needed um, we started using some of the frameworks that we had been working with in these groups, and developed um, we developed a number of principles. We started with five, then we went to eight, and then we went to ten. And those principles are the second handout in your packet. Um, that we tried to identify uh, principles which would really be a support framework for bringing practice into action in the world, service and action in the world. And th- these are not um, comprehensive, but we, you can see we started with um, naming the ethical guidelines. And what's characteristic of what we did was that we found as we developed this, we started developing a framework. And what our framework did was to name that um, engaged practice had an individual dimension, had a relational dimension, 
and had a collective dimension. And we took these principles and we started to work out what they meant at an individual level, at a relational level, and at a collective level. To a large extent, the individual level was given with Buddhist practice. So we could have traditional ethics, for example. The second principle was bringing mindfulness into action. How do we do that? We have, again, some guidelines for what that means um, individually. But what does it mean when a community is being mindful? What does it mean in our communication, in our speech? when we work together, what does that mean? What, what might that mean for a society? <clears throat> we worked a lot, the third principle again, a very straightforward principle is working with intentions, but very explicitly. How do we work with the power of clarifying where I wanna go? What's my goal? How do I do that? As one of the great 20th century yogis said, If I don't know where I'm going, I won't get there. That was uh, Yogi uh, Berra. (laughs) People know who Yogi Berra is? (laughs) He was a a baseball player (laughs) for the New York Yankees. Um, And so then then a fourth uh, principle, opening to pain and suffering. Fifth, taking care of myself, I taking... I take care of the world, and so forth. And ones on anger. And these were representative, but what we were looking for were ways to start developing uh, practices that went across these different domains. So we started, would start to have a more seamless sense of practice. And one of the really crucial findings were, was that the nature of transformation, as I mentioned a few times, is the same in all of these domains. In the sense, if we learn about how transformation works individually, we know how it works relationally or collectively. And if we learn relationally, let's say we learn how to work with conflict in relationships or in a group, we'll also be much more skillful at working with inner conflict. One example of how that is, I I found that for me is one of the most compelling, is looking at the fourth principle, which is opening to pain and suffering, opening to compassion. And this this is a very fundamental principle where the resources of Buddhist practice are tremendous and actually are very clearly valuable in a community, in a group, in an organization, in... Um, in a society. And so let me bring out how, how that looks with this particular concern. So at an individual level, we learn in Buddhist practice, and this is particularly appropriate for me to talk about this the first day of a retreat, which is usually a difficult day. How many have experienced some pain, restlessness, boredom, wandering mind, any one of those Anyone experienced that? Sleepiness. 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 Wondering why you came on retreat. <laughs> so forth. Don't worry. It, this is typical first day. It always, you know, if you've been to another retreat, you know, by the fourth or fifth day, oh, how could I, how can I come to many retreats in the future? But the first, the first day is hard, right? 
And there's, you know, it's, um, it just is. It, it come, even if you've ex- practiced for 20 years, it can be like that. Yeah. And so um, we learn in our individual practice very much uh, one of the core learnings is how to be with the unpleasant, how to be with what is difficult experience without being reactive. It's a tremendous learning. Um, and there's, there's a powerful, beautiful teaching, which is almost my favorite teaching by the Buddha. And it's actually a very concise way to talk about the Four Noble Truths. This is the teaching uh, called the Teaching of the Two Arrows, which um, I love and generally look for many occasions to talk about it. (laughs) And the teaching of the two arrows goes like this. The Buddha was talking with a bunch of monks one day, which was often the case, and he asked them, tell me, everyone experiences the unpleasant. How is a practitioner different from a non-practitioner. And by that we mean that all of us at times experience unpleasant sensations in the body. We sometimes have what we call pain, unpleasant taste and so forth. We get sick sometimes. There's typically pain connected with illness, with sometimes some aspects of getting older. Certainly uh, the dying process can be painful. And that's something we're vulnerable. We have soft bodies, we're vulnerable to pain. We also can have emotional pain at times. We know that. We can be fearful, sad, grieving, anxious, and so forth. And there can be pain connected with those emotions at times. We all have that sometimes. And we can have, we might say, uh, interpersonal pain, obviously, with others. We can be treated poorly, disrespectfully, and so forth. You know? And we can be treated unfairly or unjustly by institutions or by the whole society on the basis of gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, class, etc. And all of us experience that pain. That's called the first arrow. Everyone is, as it were, shot by an arrow. Everyone at times is shot by the first arrow, some more than others. But we all experience that. And the Buddha said, everyone is shot by the first arrow at times. So how do, how do a practitioner and non-practitioner differ? His answer was that the non-practitioner will tend, because of the presence of the first arrow, to shoot a second arrow. We might say either at oneself or at another. What does that mean in the context of those examples? It means if I am feeling pain in the body, I will tend to tense. I will tend to tense around the pain. I will struggle with it often. And in fact, uh, some doctors say 
that as much as 80% of what patients experience as pain is not the original stimulus, but it's the reaction to the pain. And that was the basis actually for one of the first applications of mindfulness in the medical field by John Kabat-Zinn and others at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, which became uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction because his first population that he worked with were people with chronic pain. And if you could get the chronic pain patients just to experience the first arrow and not shoot the second arrow, it makes a huge difference. We know that also when there's emotional pain. I think that's probably, with emotional pain, it's clearer what shooting the second arrow means, right? <laughs> that um, someone says something mean to me and I may shoot the second arrow back at that person, right? And I say something mean to that person. Or something may happen to me in a situation that I don't like and I may blame myself for the next three weeks. That's shooting the second arrow, right? Do you see how that's in in addition to the first arrow? Or, you know, at the level of conflict, you could look at the newspaper and see that most conflicts are two sides shooting second arrows at each other. They have received pain. They want to inflict pain on others. I mean, it's more complicated in some ways, but in some ways it's quite simple. That um, there's a tremendous amount of reaction to the pain automatically in which people shoot the second arrow. And so the Buddha's response was, a practitioner learns not to shoot the second arrow when the first arrow is present. A huge part of practice. In other words, we study our own reactivity. We study when we we become reactive. Huge part of practice. There's bliss, there's understanding, and there's the study of our own reactivity. (laughs) It's a big part of things. So we actually, uh, at a certain point in our practice, when uh, we get interested in how we lose it, how we get stuck, how we become reactive, because we're interested in learning how to be with the first arrow, with pain in the body, without reacting so much. Doesn't mean not to change positions or doesn't mean to, we don't um, take care of things. But if there is a kind of pain that's ineliminable, how can we be with it without adding on further pain? And again, probably the example is most clear with something like emotions where we can notice that something difficult happens, can I stop judging myself or judging another person in ways that lead to suffering? And so um, this is very interesting because I think that that model of learning not to shoot the second arrow is exactly the principle that is there at a relational level and at a collective level that we can learn in interpersonal difficulties not to keep reacting, to go for understanding and empathic connection. And a lot of what we would do with skillful speech and what we'll explore tomorrow is based on learning to track our own reactivity and 
in an interpersonal context or in a group or organizational context. And essentially, as we say in Buddhist practice, we take responsibility for our own minds, for our own minds, and we take responsibility for our own reactivity. Also very interesting, on a social level, it's the same principle of not shooting the second arrow, which is, I think, right at the basis of the theory and practice of nonviolence. Think of Gandhi and King. What are they doing other than saying, we have received the pain of oppression. We will meet that oppression with understanding and love, but with very strong action. That's essentially nonviolent response. It's saying, I will not pass on the violence. I will not pass on the pain. Because the idea is that when there's the first arrow and you keep reacting, it keeps the pain going. We know that interpersonally, we know that socially. When we just keep reacting, (coughs) violence continues and pain continues. And so it's somehow how to break the cycles of reactivity. And that's the heart of our individual practice. And you can see how it's the basis for a skillful way of working with conflict and a skillful way of bringing about social change, the heart of the nonviolence of Gandhi and King. Does that make some sense? And so you can see how the principle, I wanted to go into some depth with that one example. Do you see how the principle is the same and how when we learn something at the individual level, we have a much deeper understanding of how it works at these other levels? It's quite interesting in that when we really work with that principle of the two arrows individually, it really can... Uh, be the basis for having confidence in working at these other uh, other levels. <clears throat> and ultimately, you know what I found as we went deeper, and I think I won't be able to get too much depth to that other to the handout, but what we also found ourselves doing, we found ourselves coming up and realizing that there wasn't just an individual domain a relational domain and a collective domain, but that there was a kind of interpenetration of all of them, you know, that we could speak of. And I started to see, this was like a vision. I remember waking up one morning and having this vision of the fact, because we had been working with this model for a number of years, and then just started to see, well, there are these, there's the level of the individual, the level of the group or organization, level of the collective, but in a way, we could talk about the way that I as an individual also have internalized relational issues, let's say family or organization, and that I've internalized social values. That's more obvious. I've internalized you know, sexism or racism or consumerism from the society. And so that a fuller vision of practice would be that I want as an individual be able to explore um, my individual nature, which I do in meditation, to explore the nature of the mind, the nature of the heart, the body, and so forth. I also want to be able to do a kind of individual practice that um, looks at what I've internalized from uh, my family or from relationships. And I also want to do a kind of inner work with what I've internalized in from the society. 
we started extending that and saying that we also could have a relationship or a group uh, be almost like a, an actor. We could have a group that wants to look at different issues as well. We could have a group that wants to look at how do we as a group manifest social conditioning. Many groups do that. And we could also have a sense of, of uh, what does a social movement look like um, that uh, deals not just with collective issues, but also looks sometimes at the relational issues of its, of its organization. And so being a little bit brief here, but what, what it came to was actually that there were, uh, there's a grid, and I thought, well, there are actually nine whole different types of spiritual practice here that are opening up. And traditional spiritual practice is just the upper left uh, part of this little uh, matrix. It's the individual working on the individual. Does that make some sense? And most of these other uh, eight are underdeveloped. We don't know very well. There's some examples, but we don't know very well what a group doing spiritual practice as a group or community looks like. We don't know so well what the collective looks like, um, what a large-scale organization looks like when it's guided by spiritual principles. Right? And so this, for me, was energizing. I said, whoa, look, look at all that work to do. I better talk about it so other people do it also. <laughs> and so I hope that can give a sense of uh, kind of more of a vision and a sense of how I especially wanted to look at how the principles go across these different domains and that we don't know so well how to, do, how to work with the principles in some areas. And what we'll be doing, particularly in the afternoons, is starting to look at how we bring what we learn about in individual practice into speech and communication, very important area, into working with conflict, another very important area, and a few other areas that we'll bring up during the retreat, which start to point to how to really make this real. How to have um, a sense when we're talking in a group, this can be just as rigorous a spiritual practice as sitting on the cushion. That starts to get into this model of uh, a seamless sense of practice in all the parts of our lives, which is what we yearn for. So I'm a little bit laying out a vision and a little bit um, promising some things that will come later and a little bit hoping to um, inspire and encourage us to um, feel called in our own ways to, to work with it, something like this model, something like this approach. So let me just end uh, with just a few, a few further reflections. Really just the two conclusions and a few uh, wise statements that I've collected. Okay? So one conclusion is that it become, it's really important at this time for people who call themselves spiritual to consider 
moving their practice more out into all the parts of their lives, including the social. That, in fact, if we don't do that, we're, we're at risk. If we, have the, uh, if we have our practice simply become about personal comfort, that's valuable initially. And there are cycles, you know, and there are cycles of <clears throat> attending to ourself and attending to the world, you know. I just came in March from being on retreat for a month, right? Very beautiful. Um, and we also bring our practice into other areas. That there's some risk, I think, as we've said, with Buddhism becoming something primarily middle class. Many of my Asian friends from Thailand and other countries, that was their fear of what would happen to Buddhism in the U.S. That it would be connected with middle class escapism. That was, they, and they talked about that a lot. You know, and they... Um, they were concerned. And so there's that, there's that call. But it's also something that's very much a question of finding what, what our own timing is. There are really cycles of going inside and coming out. That's been certainly true for me, that I've had periods, might be a year or two, where I was primarily doing inner practice. And I knew that I wanted to manifest that outwardly but there was really a calling to do more inner work. And I think we have to really listen to that. In all of this, it's very important to have, to really listen carefully to one's own heart. There's a beautiful statement from Howard Thurman, who was an African-American theologian who set up the first uh, church in the Bay Area that was uh, interracial in the 1940s and 50s, I think. And Towards the end of his life, he, uh, a young activist came to visit him and said, what should I do? And you might think that Howard Thurman would say, you know, there's so much work in the world to be done. Or, you know, you know there are a lot of great projects with our church. But he didn't say that at all. He said, don't ask what the world needs. This is an interesting quotation at the end of this talk. Don't ask what the world needs, but ask what makes you come alive, because what the world needs is people who have come alive. And so we have to listen deeply. It's not just about following a formula or thinking we should do this, but listening deeply to ourselves. And for some, it might mean that I want to go in this direction. For some, it might mean I really need to do more inner work, and it's appropriate to do that for the next year, primarily. You know, so if we're spiritually oriented, we, at the right time, go outward. If we're socially oriented, we may take up spiritual practices, which are, are, can really be of obvious benefit in the social realm in terms of working with conflict, keeping equanimity, keeping balance, and so forth. We also listen for where our own individual gifts are. It's not like everyone has to do the same thing. Joanna Macy once said that the great transformation of the world involves three aspects. One is preventing further damage from happening. That's often the realm of traditional activism. She said a second is creating alternative institutions. 
It's looking at the institutions, analyzing them, and transforming them if necessary. So medical institutions, legal institutions, political, economic, ecological, and so forth. She had the third is helping to shift um, consciousness, the way we see the world. And what's important is that all those things happen. And each of us may be called to some part of that. What I have found important is that we keep all those connected, but that we see where our own gifts and inspirations lie. So it's not, this is saying, we don't have to do everything. We go where our calling is, we go where what, we see what makes ourselves come alive. And that's a really important for all of this, to really listen very deeply to what calls us. So ending with two quotes, one from uh, actually Gary Snyder's Zen teacher, Odo Sesho Roshi. He said, in Zen, there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden. It doesn't matter how big the garden is. You sit and you sweep the garden. It doesn't matter how big the garden is. A little Zen subtlety there. So, Okay. That's a metaphor. Okay. <laughs> okay. And then this is from uh, Dina Metzger. It's a little poem, short poem called Song. There are those who want to set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.